You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your work on our behalf, um, the work of your death and your resurrection. And we thank you, Lord, that it is for us. And we thank you, Lord, for your words that you said to your first disciples, that even as you were going away, going back to the Father, returning to heaven, uh, you would not leave them or us alone as orphans here on earth. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you sent your Holy Spirit to fall upon those first disciples 2,000 years ago. And we thank you, Lord, that you also delight to send your Holy Spirit upon us today as well. And so we ask indeed, uh, Lord Jesus, that you would send the Holy Spirit into our midst this morning and that you would open up our eyes to see you, um, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in all of your eternal glory and that you would transform us into your likeness of holiness from glory to glory, especially through our time this morning. And so we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. It's such a delight to get to be with you for this series on the articles, the 39 articles. And today, I've been um, given the honor, I I believe, of getting to talk to you about the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is mentioned in article number five. um, And article number five of our articles, which you can find in the back of the prayer book, um, says the Holy Ghost, proceeding from the Father and the Son, is of one substance, majesty, and glory, with the Father and the Son, very and eternal God. Just a little history about this article. It was actually not a part of the original articles in 1553. It was added in 1563 under Queen Elizabeth's reign by Archbishop Parker. Um, So it wasn't present among Cranmer's original 42 articles in 1553. But it seems as though Archbishop Parker added it um, almost, I hate to say it, but almost as an afterthought. We've got to say something about the Holy Spirit. We can't say all of this and not say something about the Holy Spirit who is fully God. And so um, it was added in to make this doctrinal statement of the 39 articles more comprehensive. And uh, Archbishop Parker based his wording here in Article 5 almost uh, uh, verbatim upon the Lutheran Confession of Württemberg. So um, it echoes also the Athanasian Creed, which is one of the creeds also found in the back of the prayer book in our historical documents. Um, So what we'll see is um, this article really affirms what we already say through our creeds, through the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Ghost, through the Nicene Creed, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, and then who spake by the prophets. So you hear that that glory that we give to the Father and the Son, we're also intended to give glory to the Holy Spirit because he possesses that same glory and majesty um, that Father and Son have as being fully God. He is um, the third person of the Trinity. If you've never read the Athanasian Creed, it's, it's worth a good read. Um, you'll find that it's very repetitive. It's almost um, like a scene from Monty Python's Holy Grail, if you can imagine. There's a scene where there's a holy hand grenade of Antioch, and forgive me for the likeness, but the holy hand grenade of Antioch, it must be, um, you have to count to three 
and then pull the pin. And so this very flowery language is used in this British comedy to describe how to count to three. The number of the counting shall not be to four, but thou shalt stop at three. And thou shalt not stop at two, but thou shalt proceed on to three. Again and again, and it's repeated. And in the Athanasian Creed, it seems like this language, uh, this language of the Athanasian Creed is overdone because it's so repetitive. Um, but they really had to parse it out very clearly and say that we worship um, one God in the Trinity, and the Trinity in the unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And then um, the creed goes on. The Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is all one. And you hear this, um, this part that the, the article echoes. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And then we also, further on, that um, the Holy Spirit proceeds, proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, and so this, this language of our doctrinal statement, we, we're getting it from a good place. We're getting it from um, good uh, authorities used, and good traditions throughout the church. But let's go on to talk about specifically, go for, I want to go from here and leave the article at this point, because there's so much that the article doesn't say. It says the bare bones of what we believe about the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't touch on all of what Scripture tells us about the Holy Spirit. And so that's what I'm going to focus on today for us. Who is the Holy Spirit? Um, What does Scripture say about the Holy Spirit, and how does Scripture bear witness to this third member of the Trinity? Well, the first thing I'd like to tell you is just that the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma or pneuma, It's got a P-N, just like a tire would, Um, a P-N-E-U-M-A. And that word for spirit is neuter in the Greek, but it doesn't mean that in the English we should say it. We always call the Holy Spirit a he, not an it. Um, The Holy Spirit is a person, right? So he deserves to be called a he. The Holy Spirit also, though, is so much more than what we think he is. We often want to say... um, Oh, it feels so good to be together. The spirit, we were so close in spirit. There was a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. And there's that beautiful song um, that in some traditions kind of feels like a kumbaya or a Christian kumbaya. But that song, there is a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, um, is not necessarily talking about the Holy Spirit, unfortunately. Because I think often people want to sing that song when they feel really good, when we have times of really good fellowship, whether they are inherently Christian times or not. And so that's unfortunate because the Holy Spirit is so much more than a feeling. Um, The Holy Spirit is a person. And so rather than continue on in this vein, I'm going to quote for you from A.W. Tozer's book, The Counselor. He says, I love this quote, spell this out in capital letters. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not enthusiasm, he is not courage, he is not energy. He is not the personification of all good qualities, like Jack Frost is the personification of cold weather. Actually, the Holy Spirit is not the personification of anything. He has individuality. He is one being and not another. He has will and intelligence. He has hearing. He has knowledge and sympathy and ability to love and see and think. He can hear, speak, desire, grieve, and rejoice. He is a person. Well, so who is this person? Who is this he? He is the third member of the Trinity. Um, The doctrine of the Trinity, you might say, well, there's no, how do we know that, how did the early church know that God was three persons in one God? How did they develop 
that doctrine, and it seems as though they didn't articulate it until after the apostles were dead, and some people will say that, and yet that's, that's not true. Um, can you all hear me all right? I'm going to move this. Okay, I'm going to move this right here. Now you can really hear me? No. Not as good? Good. Okay. Thank you. Um, so when we go back to Scripture, um, there's, for those people, again, that would say, well, the articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity happened after Scripture had been written. Well, it's not necessarily true. We find throughout Scripture that there are graces and greetings um, to God's people um, that, that, are, that get at this sense in which the Holy Spirit is equal with the Son and the Holy Spirit is equal with the Father, um, fully God, just as the other two members of the Trinity are. And so we'll see um, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so there you see Jesus putting, being put on an equal plane with God the Father. But then you also get glimmers of the Holy Spirit being viewed in the same way. And one great example is what we use whenever we have morning prayer. And we say the grace at the end of morning prayer. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that's from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We hear it, Peter uses it at the beginning of his first letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm skipping down, to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That sense of mentioning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a sign that even then, even early on, um, there was this view that the Holy Spirit was equal with Father and Son. We see it in Jesus' words, his command at the end of Matthew, um, as he's commanding his disciples. Uh, he's about to ascend into heaven, and he commands them to go and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, also in Paul's uh, letters about baptism, in uh, Ephesians 4, baptism is understood to be baptism into the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the Holy Spirit is there palpably present in our baptism, just as we saw this morning, um, even as God the Father and Jesus Christ are there present as well and involved in our baptism. So there's this Trinitarian moment. Even as Jesus' baptism was a Trinitarian moment, so too our baptism is a Trinitarian moment. One other moment in Scripture that is so clearly Trinitarian is looking back on Genesis 1. The Spirit of God in Genesis 1 hovers over the waters, and the waters are a sign of chaos. It's out of the waters that exist before creation. Out of this chaotic entity comes uh, creation, comes order, comes beauty, comes life. And the Holy Spirit is there hovering in the languages like a bird, like a bird's wings hovering over the water. Isn't it interesting that later on in Scripture, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit appears like a dove. Um, there's this likeness to a bird somehow, that there's this um, almost trembling, um, uh, fleeting moment. Um, the Holy Spirit is there. There's a tenderness under the wings of the Holy Spirit, and creation is wrought out of that chaos and out of the nurturing aspect of the Holy Spirit there at the beginning of all creation. Um, so going on from here, we, we've said, I've proved, I've shown you, um, the Holy Spirit is present in Scripture, um, seen to be equal to God the Father and God the Son. But what does the Holy Spirit do throughout Scripture? Well, all throughout Scripture, from the very beginning, we see the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned, involved in creation. Um, but we also, throughout the history of God's people, Israel, the Holy Spirit is present palpably upon 
specific people. The Holy Spirit empowers leaders of God's people um, for specific tasks and for specific roles. One of those kinds of leaders are prophets. Um, and so Moses and Joshua and even the 70 leaders that Moses um, shared leadership with so that the burden of judging the people of Israel wasn't exclusively on them, all of those people are said to have the Holy Spirit upon them. Um, we'll see even here in Numbers, um, the Lord says about these 70, I will take some of the spirit that is on you, Moses, and put it on them, on these 70 leaders, and they will help you in this leadership of this wayward people. We see it with Joshua also, a man in whom is the spirit. We see it with other prophets um, about the judges who were prophetic leaders who also ended up going out to battle with the people of Israel just like a king would, but they didn't have a king yet. The spirit of the Lord was upon them. This one was upon um, Othniel. Um, and then we also see the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. I love that language of the spirit of the Lord clothing leaders. Um, we see it with Elijah and Elisha. The spirit of Elijah that Elisha longs for is actually the Holy Spirit of God. It's not some kind of personal um, Elijah, Elijah's own spirit. It's the Holy Spirit upon Elijah. Um, and Elisha receives a double portion of the Holy Spirit, and he does even more miracles through that double, because of the double portion of the Holy Spirit upon him. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one by whom they speak the word of God. Okay, so prophets are anointed by the Holy Spirit, are filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be able to speak news to God's people. Priests in the Old Testament are anointed, and the physical anointing by oil is a sign of the anointing of the Holy Spirit that is meant to be upon them. There's this um, aspect where that oil um, is almost uh, a sign of the liquid grace poured out upon them, God's empowerment for the task of ministry. We see it also especially with kings. King Saul is said to have the Holy Spirit at one point, and then the Holy Spirit departs from him. King David has the Holy Spirit. Here in 1 Samuel 16, when David is anointed by the prophet Samuel, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. What gorgeous language. Clothed in the Spirit, with the Spirit rushing upon him. Um, David later would say, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. David was a prophetic king. So these people, these leaders, prophets, Priests and kings are anointed specifically because the task that is set before them is more than they can handle on their own. And God knows this. And in his grace, he gives them his own spirit to be able to cause them to do what he set before them. And so you see these wonderful leaders throughout Israel's history doing, um, sometimes even doing uh, miraculous deeds, um, doing things that they themselves could not be able to do on their own. Just think even of Moses. Um, who was so afraid at the beginning of Exodus, at the burning bush, remember he says, no, not me, pick someone else. No, not me, pick someone else. I can't do this. I can't lead your people. And then by the end of the book, or by the next few chapters, he's leading them boldly out from Egypt, leading them boldly through um, the waters of the Red Sea. That boldness and that courage that Moses has is not something he has inherently. It's something that God in his grace gives to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what does this have to do with the New Testament, and what does it have to do with us? Well, in the Old Testament, so we see these prophets, priests, and kings anointed for specific tasks. 
there was this expectation that there would be one to come who would have the Holy Spirit upon him in a new way. And we see this um, in Deuteronomy 18. There's this expectation that as great as Moses was, there would be an even greater prophet. There will be a prophet um, that will uh, be the perfect prophet for the people of Israel. And that, of course, looks forward to Jesus Christ. We see it in Isaiah. There's this sense of a prophetic servant of the Lord that will come. And Isaiah, um, through Isaiah, the Lord says, I have put my spirit upon him. And even um, the servant prophetically says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And if you remember this passage that I put up here, Isaiah 61, that's the passage in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus himself opens up in the synagogue in Nazareth, in his hometown. And he says, this, this passage is about me. He says, I am uh, the servant of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus Christ in a new way um, because he is the Messiah. Jesus, in his role as great high priest, also is the one upon whom the anointing has fallen, the Holy Spirit has fallen. Jesus, as the coming king, the great uh, great David's greater son, I love that title for Jesus, that he is the one through whom the promise to David here in 2 Samuel 7, uh, that the Lord made, the Lord said, I will make your kingdom an everlasting kingdom. There will be a king that will reign forever and ever, and he will be your descendant. And the Lord is making this promise to David, and that promise, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so he is anointed, the anointed king of Israel, or even, as we would say, at his death, the king of the Jews, as was written over his head there on the cross. Um, So this idea of Jesus being anointed in a new way, in a different way, it's contained even in his title. The expectation that there would be a Messiah, one to come. Well, that word Messiah, the Hebrew word Messiah, means anointed one. They expected that this coming king this coming um, Savior, in a sense, even if they didn't know the extent to which God would save them, this Savior would be anointed by God's own Spirit in a special way, for a special purpose, for a new era of God's salvation. So it's no surprise then in Luke chapter 1 when the angel Gabriel approaches Mary and tells her about this wonderful and scary and amazing thing that's going to happen to her. He tells her how it will happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then it's also no surprise that when Jesus is baptized and he officially enters into his three years of earthly ministry, that the Spirit of the Lord descends upon him like a dove. Um, There we have this Trinitarian moment. We hear the voice of the Father spoken over the second person of the Trinity, the Son in the flesh, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, the anointed one, in a new way, for a new time, for these three years of ministry, for a specific purpose. So why? Why does the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus? We could, um, I was waiting, I was prepared that maybe one of you would ask this question, but I'm going to ask it myself and then answer it. Why does the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus? Jesus is fully God and fully man. Why does he, if he is fully God, why does he need the Holy Spirit? We need the Holy Spirit. But does Jesus need the Holy Spirit here at his baptism? 
No, not necessarily. And yet God is going to show us a sign of the Trinity right there, the three in one, all in that one moment. But then also, I would like to say, I think that um, Jesus had the Holy Spirit upon himself, not necessarily because he needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do the miraculous works that he would do, but rather as a sign to those around him that he is who he says he is, that he is truly the Messiah, that he is truly the anointed one, uh, the perfect prophet to come, the one in whom uh, all of the hopes of the tabernacle and the priesthood will be fulfilled as the great high priest, the person who would be great David's greater son, the truly anointed king. So maybe he had the Holy Spirit, not because he needed him, but so that it would be a sign to those around him. But also, and I think this is even more important, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is available to each one of us as believers in Jesus. And I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about that. But there's a sense in Scripture that um, the Holy Spirit becomes available to us simply because the Holy Spirit is upon Jesus Christ. And as we put our faith in Jesus, then we are one with him. We're united by faith with him. And then the Holy Spirit is ours because of that union with Christ. So it's out of that being in Christ that then the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And so I think that had the Holy Spirit not come upon Jesus at his baptism, maybe that would not be fully affected, that that inheritance of the Holy Spirit would be ours through union with Christ. Okay. I'm going to take a breath. Um, David, do you want to pass it around for any thoughts or questions? And then I'll get into the New Testament in a minute, I promise. Anybody? <laughs> You're not going to give me a chance to take a breath. May the Spirit be with you. <laughs> yes, exactly. There we go. <laughs> yeah, Mary Kay. Oh, this is stupid. He saw the Spirit of God. Can you see the Spirit? I know. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? One thing, I'm about to talk about this. That's a really good question, Mary Kay. In Matthew chapter 3, here at the baptism, behold, the heavens were opened, and he, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. There's some question, do the others around him see the Holy Spirit coming to descend upon him? I don't know. But... Um, one of the things that it says is like. Do you see the Spirit of God descending like a dove? There's a simile here. Um, so was it an actual dove that fell upon Jesus? Well, maybe not. If it's like a dove that the Holy Spirit descends, then maybe it's all fluttery. There's this sense in which he's all fluttery upon him. There's almost this flapping of wings, which makes me think of Genesis 1. There's almost this, um, this, uh, this uncontainable, uncontrollable, um, presence of God there upon Jesus Christ. And that's what I'll go, I'm going to go on to say. So let's turn to Pentecost. Um, in a few moments, we'll look at Pentecost. Uh, you know, I'm going to jump ahead and look at Pentecost first. So, um, And then we'll go back and say what the Holy Spirit does. But looking at Pentecost, um, there's this sense in which the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, it's prophesied that the Holy Spirit will come upon all of God's people. There when Moses, the Holy Spirit, had come upon those 70 elders in Numbers 11. Do you remember? I had that up there for a brief moment. One of the, um, someone responds to, to Moses, some of those 70 elders are prophesying. 
And it's, they're like, oh, you can't prophesy because you're going to detract from Moses' authority and the beauty of Moses being anointed with the Holy Spirit. And Moses responds in this wonderful way in Numbers 11, how prophetic. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. There's this anticipation that there will be a day when every one of God's people will have the Holy Spirit upon them. And this is prophesied also in Ezekiel chapter 11. The Lord says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. Jesus knows this, and this is what Jesus is talking about in John 7, when at the great feast, at the, great, at the last day of the feast, on the great day, Jesus stands up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If we weren't able to understand that on our own, John gives a little interpretation. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus um, would have to go, would have to die and rise and go into heaven for the Spirit to be able to come upon us in a new way. And there's a sense in which um, Pentecost is not possible without the ascension. Unless Jesus goes into heaven, um, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon each one of us is not possible. And he talks about that in the upper room with his disciples. And um, maybe we'll have time to go back and look at what he promises the Holy Spirit will do. But here on Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we see... Um, that the day of Pentecost arrives, and all of the disciples were together in one place. And it looks as though they might even be in um, that same upper room that they were staying in uh, when uh, the week that Jesus died. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. One time, I, there's this one church, and I can't remember where I've seen it, but they have a beautiful, um, t- a, a beautiful mural behind their table, their communion table, just like we have a beautiful painting behind ours. Ours is of the Last Supper, of course. But this one in this church was of Pentecost, and it was very, um, very much 19th century art. It was very sweet. Um, All of the disciples were in different pastel robes. They were very calm. Mary was with them for some reason. But, I mean, there were women there definitely, and Mary was probably there, but there were probably a lot of other people there as well. They were all very calm, and there was this little tiny, teeny tiny, like, candle flame over each one of their heads. And it was the most tame version of Pentecost I have ever seen. I remember looking at that depiction and reading it alongside Scripture and thinking, I don't think it happened like that. Um, because in the passage in Acts chapter 2, they're up in the room and then suddenly they're out in the street and you don't even know how to get out in the street. And all of this language, this um, simile language, which if you remember from literature, similes are like or as when something is so indescribable that you have to use a different image to be able to describe it. So the sound in the room was like a mighty rushing wind. And the appearance upon each one of the disciples as they were anointed with the Holy Spirit was as of fire. Maybe it was real fire, maybe it wasn't, but it was like fire. It was certainly bright and hot, maybe, and, um, and something other about it, something uncontrollable about it, the way fire is uncontrollable. Um, there is this sense in which all of these similes point to the fact that the Holy Spirit cannot be contained. 
God cannot be contained by mere mortals. All throughout scripture, whenever God appears to his people, um, these, there's a special word for that. A theophany is an appearance of God. Whenever God appears to his people, it is so much, it's so overwhelming that they cannot contain themselves. And a great example is Ezekiel chapter 1. Um, I remember getting to take a class with a new, an Old Testament professor in seminary who had done her PhD on Ezekiel. It's always good to study with the people who are talking about what they studied in such depth. It was such a good class. And I'll never forget her saying, my Hebrew is not good enough to notice this, but her Hebrew is amazing. And she said, in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees a vision of the Lord um, looking like a man, a son of man, and there are um, chariots around him, these wheels of fire, right, the um, chariots of fire, wheels of fire, and there are angels, and there is like a rainbow, and there are all these burnished metals, and the way he talks about what he sees um, in the language is so disjointed. Um, in the Hebrew, there aren't even complete sentences. Um, it's almost like he's just saying, rainbow, fire, wind, ah, I don't know what to say, because his experience of God in that moment is so overwhelming. He can only use similes to describe what, describe what he's seeing because the presence of God is so other than what he has ever experienced before. And so it's no mistake at Pentecost that there is wind, there's fire. We heard in Jesus' um, saying in John 7, he used water as an example. Um, these, uh, these elements are beyond human control. And so it's no mistake that those are the similes that we use to talk about the Holy Spirit and the dove as well. Doves are pretty hard to get back in a cage, aren't they? We always see them being um, open from a cage at a wedding or something, and they, they go out, and they're free, and they, you can't control them. You can't get them back in the cage. Once they're out of the cage, um, there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit um, is beyond our control. Um, and yet, uh, that has some implications that I'll get to for what it means for us as, um, as followers of Jesus. In the last days, and this is... The, um, what happens at Pentecost is interpreted then by Peter. And Peter gets up, and he starts quoting from the prophets. He quotes Joel 2 to describe what is happening. He says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is Peter quoting Joel. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. There's a sense for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, that there is no distinguishing between old and young, male and female, rich and poor, when it comes to the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are each one of us heirs of God's spirit as we are in Jesus Christ, and he delights to pour out his spirit upon us. We don't have to be in a, speci a, a special position of leadership like in the Old Testament um, when the Holy Spirit is restricted to prophets, priests, and kings. No, each one of us, no matter what our job, no matter what our calling, no matter what um, gender we are, no matter what, um, what kind of wealth we possess, how old we are, we each get to be ones who will receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and so... What does the Holy Spirit do? Um, I'm going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. I've skipped over a lot of stuff in John's gospel about what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus um, says that he will go to the Father, and as he goes to the Father, he will not leave 
his followers as orphans, but he will send the Holy Spirit upon them. And he says the Holy Spirit will convict them of, uh, and convict the world of sin, of um, judgment, and about Jesus. And then that also the Holy Spirit will lead his followers into all the truth about Jesus. And so that's this role. I'm going to go back, so hold on. Don't get dizzy. That's this role of the paraclete. Um, here in John 14, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. This word paraclete is a word that you might be familiar with if you've ever done a Bible study. Some translations, um, no, no translations, I think, actually use the Greek word paraclete. But different translations uh, translate it in different ways. Some will say comforter. Some, one even says companion. The RSV says counselor. Um, the ESV says helper, but that's not my favorite one because I think helper is too weak. And comforter sounds like the duvet on my bed, which I love. If only it would get colder outside so that I could actually enjoy it. But, but that's, uh, the Holy Spirit is not necessarily warm and fuzzy. He makes us strong and he encourages us and he fills us with God's power to be able to obey the Lord. But he doesn't necessarily make us feel warm and fuzzy. And so that's where I think advocate is the closest translation for paraclete. An advocate, the, the Holy Spirit is literally like our defense attorney. Um, Jesus says he'll give another advocate because he is the first advocate. He is the advocate with the Father, the one who atones for our sin, as uh, John acknowledges in 1 John. But this other advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, as I said, he will teach all things to us, his disciples. And those first disciples, by the power of the Holy Spirit, were able to recall all of what Jesus had said. So if you're ever worried about the Bible, how do we know that this is what Jesus said? We can trust that the Holy Spirit brought back to their memory some of the things that Jesus said because they were suddenly able to understand it in a new way. Um, this spirit of truth is really like our defense attorney. And Luke points this out in Luke chapter 12. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So that gets at the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, the Holy Spirit also uh, engenders faith within us. No one of us, as Paul says, can say Jesus is Lord, which is essentially a confession of faith. Jesus is either, um, you can't say Jesus is Lord if you don't believe in him. You would never say so-and-so is um, going to be ruler over my whole life unless you believed in him. Um, Jesus is Lord is a confession that can only be said by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit engenders faith within us. The Holy Spirit does a work that is miraculous in us. We often think of, um, if you think of charismatic churches or Pentecostal churches, where they want to see the signs and wonders that were done in those first days after the first Pentecost, they want to see them done again in their midst. And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. But what God does is always miraculous in us. Whenever God produces within us this fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Those gifts, as well as the gift of faith, are miracles of the human heart. Those are moments when God, as Ezekiel prophesied, has taken our stony hearts and then turned them into 
parts of flesh. So God is at work in us doing miracles, uh, miracles of righteousness in our hearts. Um, there's also, um, there are these gifts of the Holy Spirit, and these are kind of the more miraculous gifts that people expect or want to, um, or are either scared of on one side or want to focus on so much that they lose sight of the whole point and purpose of the Holy Spirit. Um, the whole point and purpose of the Holy Spirit, I like to say, is that the Spirit is not um, going to be a diva. The Spirit is not the diva of the Trinity because everything that the Holy Spirit does is to showcase and spotlight Jesus Christ. Um, the Holy Spirit is shy. Uh, just like when I was in college in my theater, um, there were some people who never wanted to be on stage. Obviously, I always wanted to be on stage. But there were some people that never wanted to be on stage. They only wanted to be backstage. Put me in the costume shop. Put me in the light crew. I'm going to sit up in the, um, in the ceiling the whole time. I don't want you to see me. Um, put me um, in the carpentry shop. I don't want to be seen on stage. And those people were almost shy. And they were so willing to turn the spotlight on the people who were on stage. The Holy Spirit is like that. And so in some churches where there is a high view of the Holy Spirit, which is wonderful, um, if you ever get a sense in a church that the Holy Spirit has taken over center stage and edged Jesus off stage, then that's not the Holy Spirit. The real, true Holy Spirit is always shining the spotlight on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, the Holy Spirit brings about sanctification and holiness in our lives. Um, and one last thing, and then I'm going to take a few questions. The Holy Spirit, um, and I love how the New Testament talks about this, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of what is to come. As um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, there's that language of the Holy Spirit, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Well, the literal word guarantee is a down payment. It's a formal promise, uh, almost in writing at times, a real guarantee, a literal guarantee, is often in writing that certain conditions will be fulfilled, especially um, in, in commercial things, that a product will be repaired or placed. If, a um, if it goes bad during a specific time, we offer a 10-year guarantee without rusting. Um, but really, the synonym here is a warranty. Um, also, that this, um, there will be a down payment of what's to come. So a down payment is a type of payment made in cash during the onset of the purchase of an expensive good or service. This payment represents typically only a percentage of the full purchase price. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. All of the joyful moments in this life as Christians, all of the consolations, as it could be said, those moments when we feel overpowered by God's love for us, when we feel overwhelmed once again by the cross of Jesus Christ, when we feel moved to fall to our knees in repentance, these moments of, um, of those are really joy, even if they're sorrow of, of repentance, that godly grief, is a part of the joy of the Lord. These moments of very real presence of the Holy Spirit, these are all just a foretaste of what's to come. These are just pennies compared to the treasure of heaven. So um, this, is, this is what's to come. The joy, the majesty, the participation, the restoration, the unity, all will be complete. 
Everlasting life is the true inheritance. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and in the life of the church merely confirms the incredible life that will come. So what does this have to do with us right now? Well, um, I'm going to pray in a minute after we take questions. But one thing, did you notice all of this liquid language about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is, in some ways, um, like liquid grace upon us, poured out upon us. Um, and so if, if the Holy Spirit is talked about in these language, this language of liquid, we then are like vessels. Do you just see us? I see us like these pots, like the jars of clay that um, Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 4. We are these empty vessels waiting to be filled. We can be filled with so many things, so many terrible things that consume our time and our attention. And yet God desires to fill us with his own Holy Spirit. And so when we ask for the Holy Spirit to come into our life, he delights to come in. And yet because we are these broken vessels, we leak. And so that's where I don't believe in a second baptism, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, because we need the Holy Spirit again every day. And so in a moment when we pray to close, we'll pray for the Holy Spirit to come once again and fill us again, revive us again, O oh Lord, we ask. Okay, David, sorry, I didn't give you much, I actually didn't give you much time. Any questions? Libby. I think of um, the pledge of the joy to come. I know it's talked about our eternal destiny to be yes. with him forever in, in that place. And, yes. And yet he's given me personally such a uh, gift of little joy that um, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yes. I mean, having both visions of it is so spectacular. It's kind of amazing to think as great as our joy has been and can be here on earth, the joy to come is just exponentially greater. Thank you, Libby. There was another one in the back and then right here. Yeah. Melanie. Hi. Um, I think I may have misunderstood something. Oh, please. I'm really confused. Oh, please. Did the author of the counselor keep saying that the Holy Spirit is a person? Say it again. Who? The author. Was it the counselor, the first oh. slide? That he kept yeah. saying the Holy Spirit is a person. Yeah, A.W. Tozer says the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. Okay. And so we... Um, so I always think of it just as spirit. It's just Jesus here on earth. It's, it's he's distinct from Jesus. And so it's always important to see him as distinct from from Jesus and as a full person in his own right. But oh, is that what he meant? Okay, because I yeah. always think of it's what Jesus left us in the Trinity, but the Holy Spirit is here yes. on earth on earth with us yes. to represent God and Jesus, yes. but it's the third person. Yes. Okay, so he's, so he's person. a person. He What he's getting away from, what Tozer's getting away from, thanks for asking that, Melanie. I was thinking of like a, yeah. like a like me, like a Like person, physical. He, right. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is not physical, okay, and yet he's right. palpably present spiritually in our midst. And, and rather than call him, he, what Tozer's trying to do is to get us away from saying it, about the Holy Spirit, and to get us away from this sort of like vague sense of good feelings, which is not what Scripture is about. Scripture has a very specific, distinct understanding of the Holy Spirit. So does that help, I think? Yeah. He's not saying the Holy Spirit is in the flesh. No. But you're right. Thanks for saying that. Thanks. That's good. Any other thoughts or questions? One more. At one place, uh, Paul, St. Paul says that uh, I live, but yet not I, but Christ lives within me. Yes. And yet we use the same language about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yes. So it's a little bit 
confusing there. You're what right. What do you think about it that? It actually is. Okay, so um, great question. He said that Paul says, I live, but Christ lives within me. He is in some ways talking about the Holy Spirit living within him because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. Um, the Holy Spirit is Jesus' presence in his bodily absence. We might say, where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is seated right now in heaven. The flesh of Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of power. For once now, there's a human man in heaven for the first time ever, and he's paving the way. We'll get to be there at the Father's side, near the Father, um, around the throne of God. But the Spirit um, is his presence in his absence. It's almost like the union of the Spirit in, upon Jesus Christ, um, the union of the Trinity itself means that the Holy Spirit is, you can use that synonymously. So it's almost as though Paul could have said Jesus or the Holy Spirit in that moment, except that Paul in that moment is specifically talking about the suffering of Jesus on the cross and that that is the same life that he is living out. He is living out a vicarious suffering on behalf of those whom he's going to with the gospel. Does that help? Make sense? Okay, thank you so much. Let's pray. I know I've gone way, way over, but if you want to stay and ask me more questions, that would be wonderful. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you said once again that you would not leave us alone, but that you would send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, from the Father. And so indeed we say, Holy Spirit, come. You have come into our midst this morning through worship, through studying your word. You have, um, you have blessed us with seeing Jesus once again in all of his great love for us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would indeed be the one to empower us. Would you fill us? Um, would you send us out from this place? Would you cause us to obey the Lord in ways that we can't on our own? Would you cause us to have a faith beyond ourselves? Would you cause us to bear fruit in keeping with, re with repentance, um, that fruit of righteousness in our hearts? Would you be the one to do a miracle in our hearts once again today? And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.